As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. In terms of how you think about problem sets, I, when I was a cadet, what's the first, what's the cadet motto at West Point? You will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. Mm. I, I, I was the CIA director. We lied, we cheated, we steal, stole. It's, it was like we we had we had entire we had entire training courses. Uh, and the crowd goes wild. Man, he even got a woo in there. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda, and of course, that was our good friend and Secretary of State, as well as former Director of the CIA, Mike Pompeo, speaking at a, uh, or on a panel at uh, Texas A&M, and uh, just going over the business, keeping it real. We lie, we cheated, we stole. He forgot to add that uh, we also sold drugs, we executed people, we financed terrorism in the Middle East, but you know, we can't get into all of that. Texas A&M. But what's going on, guys? Uh, Before we get started with today's topic, I just want to give you the uh, friendly reminder to rate and review the podcast. Um, Guys, we we hit the goal. So uh, we were trying to hit 100 ratings. Um, We passed that. We're at 102. So thank you so much for everyone who's been uh, rating the podcast, uh, reviewing the podcast. Again, this stuff really, really helps us with, with ratings and rankings and things like that. So I, I can't tell you how much it means to me for, for you guys to do this. Uh, next step now, though, we're setting new goals. There's a new bar that's set, uh, and that bar is going to be not just 200, but 500. So we're trying to get you know halfway to 1,000 and uh, you know further legitimize this podcast. So do what you can, share, tell your friends, all that stuff. You know what to do. But uh, it is greatly appreciated on our side. Okay, so there has been a, well, I'll just lead off with this statement. So I think right now we're probably closer to a military intervention with Iran than we have been since the Iranian Revolution. Um, Hardline politics is taking priority right now with this administration. And if you've been paying attention to the recent actions uh, and the recent announcements from the White House, um, I think you would all agree. Just to give you some context, so the Trump administration, they pulled out of the Iran deal and uh, they put additional sanctions on Iran back in November. Uh, these sanctions were intended to prevent any country from purchasing oil from Iran. They wanted to demolish the Iranian oil industry. Well, Mike Pompeo said on 
Monday that the U.S. will not issue any uh, exception to Iranian oil importers. Uh, so what the U.S. did is that they granted 100-day, 180-day waivers to eight countries, allowing them to buy Iranian oil uh, despite the sanctions that were put in place. Uh, with the stipulation that the countries would wean off Iranian oil. Now, the countries that were issued these waivers were Greece, Italy, Taiwan, China, India, Turkey, Japan, and South Korea. Greece, Italy, and Taiwan, they've already reduced oil waivers to zero anyway. They're not, they're not importing any Iranian oil anymore. So that just leaves the, the Asian markets where the majority of Middle Eastern oil goes. So Iran, they export a million barrels a day. And right now it's very unclear if there are a million extra barrels in the market to make up the difference. So inevitably this could potentially raise the oil price through the roof. And that could be a huge problem. And a lot of industry experts, they're pretty perplexed by this because they thought the cutoff of waivers was going to be unlikely since the Trump administration, they clearly prefer oil prices that are are not high. Um, typically, that's a sign of an administration. Like you can judge an, an administration by the pr- cost of oil because that's something that affects everyone's daily life. It affects the standard of living, how much money it costs to put gas in your tank. And right now, crude prices are heading higher and higher. Higher. Uh, the prices today were almost at sixty-six dollars a barrel the last time I checked. And what's ironic about this is that Trump said that he was up. He he was pissed off at the Federal Reserve. For raising interest rates and the main excuse the fed gave trump for raising those interest rates was low oil prices well we've seen prices rise by 40 percent like remember we're talking about a million barrels of oil a day it's very hard for the market to just pull that out of their butt and and just and, and have that in the global supply and what this does is that this just this angers the world. A lot of countries just don't like the fact that the U.S. tells them what to do. And they don't like the fact that the U.S., they threaten to punish them if they don't do what the U.S. wants them to do, like not buying oil from Iran. And the reason why, this is important to understand, the reason why the U.S. yields this power is not only because of its military. It's because the dollar is the reserve currency and we threaten to cut off access to the U.S. dollar and the banking systems if other countries don't comply with our request. But countries are having less and less um, incentive and motivation to continue with this standard, especially when it comes to oil. Because one of the things that gives the U.S. dollar value is that oil exporting nations, they price out oil in dollars. And let's just say if they start pricing oil in a different currency... That's going to further weaken the dollar. It's going to weaken the demand for the dollar. So this is a very, very, very risky move. It's a very, very bold and risky move coming from the Trump administration. Honestly, it's extremely arrogant. And I think it's probably one of the dumbest things that Trump has done as president so far. This is probably one of the dumbest things that the White House has done as president. This can actually, this would actually affect our international, with, this would actually alienate our allies from us. Now, what the Trump administration is saying right now, what Mike Pompeo is saying, is that other OPEC countries are going to make up the difference. They, Saudi Arabia, they went to Saudi Arabia, they're like, hey, are you going to be able to make up the difference? And they're like, yeah, I guess we can, but Saudi Arabia they might not even have the incentive or motive 
to keep oil prices from, from raising. Because this is something that came to mind. And this is something that Ron Paul brought up. So, Saudi Aramco is getting ready to do an IPO. If the price of oil goes up, it can make a difference of billions of dollars in the value of their stock. So, I don't even think they even... It's, I don't think that right now they have an interest in keeping the price of oil lower stable. I think they want the price to, to raise. And guys, um, history repeats itself. So in 1973, there was a big oil crisis. Um, there was an oil embargo from the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries. And the reason why there was an oil embargo was because of the U.S. support for Israel during the Yom Kippur War. Uh, during this oil crisis, the price of oil went from $3 a barrel to $12 a barrel globally. So with that in mind, with the potential of something that like that happening where oil prices or gas prices they raise by 400%, there's got to be a really good reason for it, right? We must be in immediate danger of uh, as Americans for us to pursue this policy, right? I mean, Iran's got to be working on some type of super Iranian Persian ballistic missile majiga uh to kill us all. Well, let's see what Mike Pompeo has to say about this. Uh, almost one year ago, after withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal, President Trump implemented the strongest pressure campaign in history against the Islamic Republic of Iran. The goal remains simple, to deprive the outlaw regime of the funds it has used to destabilize the Middle East for four decades and incentivize Iran to behave like a normal country. I'm really curious what Mike Pompeo means behave like a normal country because last time I checked, the country that's supposed to make up the oil difference for Iran just beheaded 37 Saudi citizens on a, in a kangaroo trial in public. Just a public execution of 37 prisoners. Is that a normal country? It should not be the standard of how Iran behaves. Up to 40% of the regime's revenue comes from oil sales. It's the regime's number one source of cash. Before our sanctions went into effect, Iran would generate as much as $50 billion annually in oil revenue. Overall, to date, we estimate that our sanctions have denied the regime well north of $10 million. The regime would have used that money to support terror groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and continue its uh, missile development in defiance of UN Security Council Resolution 2231. And it would have perpetuated the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. All right. So last time I checked, it was Saudi warships and U.S. warships that had a blockade on Yemen, resulting in widespread starvation and the outbreak of cholera due to lack of medical supplies. Last time I checked, it was Saudi warplanes that were blowing up school buses. And last time I checked, the U.S. was providing intelligence for those airstrikes, as well as maintenance for the planes. You can't blame Iran on a humanitarian crisis in Yemen. That is all Saudi and U.S. right there. That's all U.S. and Saudi, Saudi and U.S. That is not on Iran. Just because... You say that Iran backs the Houthi movements, which is not proven. They do back them to some degree, but not in the degree that you explain, not not how you present it. 
they throw them a bone once in a while, but they're not. It's not a proxy war. There's not an Iranian proxy like Hezbollah. The Houthis want to be an Iranian proxy, but I don't think the Iranians. The Iranians know that that would just cause a huge shit fest in the world if if that were actually to happen. If they had Hezbollah as well as the Houthi movement, remember. When the Houthis were going to sack Sana, the Iranians tried to convince them not to do it. And remember, a lot of those weapons that they said that were from Iran that the Houthis fired were due to a Yemen stockpile. Yemen's been in war for many, many years. They've, they've had a stockpile of, of missiles for a long time. Some of them are from North Korea. Some of them were purchased from Iran a long time ago. These aren't Iran is not sending boatloads of ships to Yemen for them to strike at Saudi Arabia. It's just not true. All the violence is coming from, or not all the violence, there's obviously violence from the Houthi movement, but all the violence that is coming, that the majority of the violence that is killing large swaths of civilians, and the reason why there's a famine, and the reason why people are starving in Yemen, is because of the blockade. That is why Yemen is hell on earth right now. And these lies and these reasons for veto, for, to, to veto that bill are so transparent. If you look at it, if you just look at, if you spend two hours just reading about Yemen, it, it's almost impossible to con- conclude that Iran is the culprit, no matter what source that you read. Because that's how much that's how much unification there is against the war in Yemen. The only people who are for the war in Yemen are the people in the Trump administration and Saudi Arabia. Now remember, this is a man who was trained in the arts of lying, cheating, and stealing. So let's continue to move on with that context. Our goal has been to get countries to cease importing Iranian oil entirely. Last November, we granted exemptions from our sanctions to seven countries and to Taiwan. We this is to give our allies and partners to wean themselves off of Iranian oil and to assure a well-supplied oil market. Today, I am announcing that we will no longer grant any exemptions. We're going to zero, going to zero across the board. We will continue to enforce sanctions and monitor compliance. Any nation or entity interacting with Iran should do its diligence and err on the side of caution. The risks are simply not going to be worth the benefits. If you think China is going to come is is going to do this, because that's the big one that you have to worry about. China and Turkey are the ones that are really pushing back on this. Um, as far as I know, India said that they're going to comply with it. Uh, Japan and South Korea are, are most likely going to comply because you know they they. Do whatever the U.S. For the most part, they do what the U.S. tells them to do. Um, however, um, Turkey and China don't. Um, China buys about five, I think, between five hundred thousand to six hundred thousand barrels from Iran a day. So they, Iran, China is the primary buyer of Iran's of oil. So um, there's going to be heavy, heavy pushback, and they're not fans of it, and I don't think they're even going to comply with it. I'm sure they're going to continue to buy it. What they could do is just start purchasing it in a different currency. Um, so that's probably that, – that's, uh, that's the consequence. I, I want to emphasize that we have used the highest 
possible care in our decision to ensure market stability. The United States has been in constant discussions with allies and partners to help them transition away from Iranian crude to other alternatives. And we have been working with uh, major oil producing countries to ensure the market has sufficient volume to minimize uh, the impact on pricing. Both the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have assured us they will ensure an appropriate supply for the markets. And of course, the United States is now a significant producer. All right, so um, recent update. This this just happened this morning. So apparently, the there was a Soviet-built Druzba pipeline, uh, which runs from Russia uh, via Belarus to Central Europe. Um, apparently, there's some type of contamination. And because of that, they're not able to use that pipeline. The price of oil has jumped to $75 a barrel. Uh, according to the international benchmark Brent crude, it traded at $75 this morning. So that's a $10 increase just now, just now, since I started podcasting this. And what's also interesting, there was this article that was released by oilprice.com late afternoon um, yesterday, and it was going over, um, according to the the budget of uh, Saudi Arabia's budget, that they plan on increasing government spending. So they, they keep on they plan on increasing government spending by seven percent to increase uh, economic growth over there. And what a lot of the energy planners want within the kingdom, they actually want the price of oil to go to about eighty dollars a barrel. So I don't think there's any type of co-op I don't know if there's actual cooperation with Saudi Arabia. To, to start producing more oil. I think that they really do have an incentive to not produce and cooperate with this and keep the oil prices high. So I think what Mike Pompeo is doing is demonstrating again, lie, cheats, and steals. That's how he was trained. So this sounds like bullshit. And we'll see this summer. We'll see what the, we'll see how much you're paying in gas. And this is mainly going to affect Europe more so than anywhere else. But you're... You'll see how much you're paying in gas when you're going, when you're traveling to the beach, when you're going to the Jersey Shore this summer, or if you're going to wherever you go on vacation, you'll see how much that trip cost you. Well, I can confirm that uh, uh, each of those suppliers are working directly with Iran's former customers to make the transition away from Iranian crude less disruptive. And uh, as I said, we're doing our part here in the United States, too. In 2018, uh, crude production increased by 1.6 million barrels per day over the 2017 levels. And the U.S. Energy Information Agency predicts an increase of an additional 1.5 million barrels per day in calendar year 2019. Look, with the announcement today, we've made clear our seriousness of purpose. We are going to zero. We, how long we remain there at zero? depends solely on the Islamic Republic Iran's senior leaders. We've made our demands very clear to the Ayatollah and his cronies. End your pursuit of nuclear weapons. I just want to add that there is zero evidence that Iran is pursuing nuclear weapons right now. The evidence points that they're just trying to build a nuclear program so they can actually export more oil. Zero evidence that they've been pursuing nuclear weapons at all. Hey, it's the same thing that Saudi Arabia is trying to do. They're trying to get a nuclear program as well. And I think that they're primarily trying to get that nuclear weapon so they can act. They, they don't have to spend their oil revenue or use their own oil 
on their own energy consumption. You know, don't get high on your own supply type of thing. So all the evidence points that Iran is building, the nuclear program is for, it's a a civilian nuclear program, so they can start using, so they can start, so they can actually export more oil. Stop testing and proliferating ballistic missiles. Stop sponsoring and committing terrorism. Halt the arbitrary detention of U.S. citizens. Our pressure is aimed at fulfilling these demands and others, and it will continue to accelerate until Iran is willing to address them at the negotiating table. Finally, as I've said before, these demands are not just coming from the United States government and many of our allies and partners. They are similar to what we hear from the Iranian people themselves. I want the Iranian people to know that we are listening to them and standing with them. We will not appease their oppressors, as the last administration did. Our hopes are for a better life for them and all people afflicted by the regime's violence and destruction. I will now take a few questions. All right. So I did an entire podcast on this with Mohammed Sahimi um, about Iran's fake and real opposition. And right now there actually is an organic grassroots movement in Iran that wants change from the hardliners. I'll be very frank. Iran sucks. They're not a good actor. I'm not, I'm not sitting here as a defender of Iran and their actions and their government. They suck in a lot of ways. And they've sucked internationally in the Middle East. As far as I know, the things I've heard is that, so they're, they're intervening in Syria right now. They were originally, they were invited into the country to help fight uh, jihadist militants. But I've heard stories about how the Syrian army doesn't like the Iranian, the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. That when they get together, there's actually been accounts of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard trying to convert Sunnis in the army to, to Shia, to like the, you know, the, the, the extreme Shiite version of Islam that they practice in Iran. So, yeah, Iran does suck. It does suck. And I, and I, and I don't want to defend that regime like I'm an apologist for it. Um, they do a lot of things that are, that, that are totally disagreeable. Um, they're, huge, they're huge backers of the Muslim Brotherhood. They are, I mean, they do sponsor Hezbollah. There are a lot of bad things that Iran does, and I'll be completely honest. However, however, when you sanction a country, when you do harm on the citizens, all that does, it just increases public support for that regime. So when you start, you know, when when you start saying that you have the support of the Iranian people, that's total bullshit. Yeah, there's certain interest groups. There's certain interest groups like there's monarchists and things like that who are loyal to the Shah who have been exiled from Iran, who no longer live in Iran, who don't give a fuck, who like, they're just like, screw Iran, sanction the hell out of them. We want to go back there and we want to have political influence. And they lobby the United States. There's a lot, there's, there is a Iranian lobby that is for regime change in the U.S. And that's, that's what Pompeo is referring to. But if you go on the ground in Iran, the people who are, who, who would be the natural reformers, who would be fighting for a better government, who would be fighting to get the hardliners out of power, we alienate them when we put sanctions on the country because they're the ones who feel the effects. They're the ones who won't be able to afford to put gas in their car. They're the ones who won't be able to get medicine for their kid when they're sick. They're the ones who are going to be hungry at night because of the economic situation. 
sanctions are an act of war and by by imp imposing sanctions on a country you're not hurting the government you're empowering the government you're empowering the government because the people have a common enemy and that's the country that's putting those economic sanctions on you in the first place so the natural reformers like the green revolution that happened a while back that's not going to happen organically when they have a common enemy of the United States because we're bullying them around. You need to leave them alone. There could be regime change in Iran if you really wanted to. You know how you achieve regime change in Iran? You just leave them alone. You leave them alone. I've heard multiple accounts how Iran, the people of Iran are pretty progressive. They're really progressive compared to the other countries in the Middle East. And that they want change. But when you bully them and you force them into a corner, they're going to go with the strongman. They're going to go with the hardliners. Like, listen, there was a moderate Ayatollah. We had a moderate Ayatollah in Iran who wanted to improve relations with the West. Who wanted to make it better. Who, who wanted to have reform. But then George W. Bush went ahead and put them on the axis of evil. And then the population was like, what the hell? We, have, we got a moderate right here, and we're still on the axis of evil. I guess we might as well be the boogeymen that you say that we are. This is counterproductive behavior right here. We're, all we're doing by putting these sanctions on Iran is that we're empowering that government. Yeah, the government sucks. Yes, it sucks. The Ayatollah sucks. They suck. They're not good actors. They do sponsor. They do. They do sponsor some terrorist groups. They do. They they do bad things. But still, sanctioning will not get you reform. It will never get you reform. We sanctioned Saddam Hussein's Iraq for twelve years, and do you know how many people died during those sanctions? Anywhere, we don't even know the exact number, but the reports are between 500,000 to 1 million people died due to, you, to, to international sanctions on Iraq. And when you put international sanctions on someone, when a country doesn't have access to medicine, to food, to daily hygienic supplies, things that keep you living... What happens is that it doesn't kill people indiscriminately. It kills people very discriminately. When you have a lack of medical supplies, it kills the elderly and it kills the young. So there's estimates of over 500,000 Iraqi children dead due to those sanctions. And do you think that garnered U.S. support? Do you think that garnered goodwill in the Arab world as a whole? You do know that on the list of uh, grievances for Osama bin Laden, one of the major grievances was Iraqi sanctions. And Madeleine Albright, when asked if it was worth it, if all those dead, those hundreds of thousands of dead children in Iraq were worth it, she said it was worth it. And that was played on Arab television every single minute that was played on. And how do you think the feedback was? What do you think the perception of the Arab world was on the United States when you have Madeleine Albright saying that it was totally worth it to kill 
500,000 children. These sanctions will not achieve the goal of regime change in Iran. The only way to achieve that goal is to leave them alone, and they will do it themselves. You need to stop this behavior. You know, even when we're trying to act, you know, maniacal, when we're trying to do something that you could say is disagreeable, the U.S. doesn't even do it well. They always end up messing up. The whole reason why Iran's original power is because we went ahead and blew up Iraq. We blew up Iraq and then Iran came in. That's what happened. That's why Iran is a regional power. We had a strategy called dual containment. We were trying to contain Iran and we were trying to contain Iraq. And then all of a sudden we're like, all right, let's just blow up Iraq. And there's three different sectarian and ethnic sects. With the majority of the country being Shiite. Who do you think is going to be have the major influence in Iraq? The country is about 40-30% Sunni. It's majority Shiite. It's anywhere between 60-70% to 70% Shiite. And then, I'm not sure the exact number of Kurds. I think it's about 10% Kurds. I mean, who are, who are Sunnis? But they're all just three very clear different divides between sectarianism and, and, and uh, you know, racial category. Who do you think is going to have the biggest influence in Iraq when the majority of the country is Shiite? Well, the biggest Shiite country next to you is going to have the influence, and that's Iran. This is U.S. foreign policy in a nutshell. But remember in the context, we're talking in the context of Mike Pompeo, former CIA director who was trained in the arts of lying and stealing and cheating and all of the things that are in your CIA class, in your CIA syllabus. Step one, all right, you know, international security. That's what I imagine what the CIA syllabus looks like. Okay, chapter one, international security, all blah, 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 covert operations, okay, classified brotherhood, murder. Ooh, covert ops, drug dealing. Yeah, this is my favorite chapter. Surveillance. I like that one. Ooh, bribing warlords. This is a fun one. It's going through. It's going through the CIA syllabus. Okay, what else is there? Oh, oh, planting weapons on on presidents and trying to ooh, regime change. Oh, this is a real cool case in the in the Nicaragua. We, we, you're telling me that we removed the 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 president of Guatemala by planting guns. Uh, saying that they were Soviet arms when they weren't. We just planted guns on them. It's the U.S. the CIA for you. Well, that's what the CIA does. A, being in the CIA should eliminate you from, from running public office. It should be like being um, a bastard in Game of Thrones. Like, oh, you're yeah, a bastard now. He's a, he's a bastard. He can't inherit any lands. It's very corrupt. They do a lot of bad things. And then there's like shows that idolize them. I just watched the Jack Ryan film uh, with uh, the good-looking guy. I forget his name. The one that was made, it was had Kevin Costner and the good-looking guy. And it was just like, we're the good part of the CIA. He worked for the CIA as a Wall Street broker. And he was saying, you know, Kevin Costner, when he was recruiting Jack Ryan, he was, uh, Jack Ryan was saying like, hey, like, I don't know about CIA. Don't you torture people and waterboard? I don't know if I'm down for this. And he's like, not my part of the CIA. We're the good guys in the CIA. Dude, 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm sure there are divisions. There, there, there actually, to be fair, there are divisions in the CIA that I'm sure are completely normal and, and actually do have security interest in, in mind when it comes. And they're probably patriots. I don't want to just completely dismantle. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't want to completely dis. I do want to dismantle the CIA, but I don't want to collectively condemn everyone in the CIA as being a terrible person. But a lot of people in the CIA, a lot of the operations that they do are bad, are 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 pretty corrupt. Like assassination, selling like selling drugs, assassinating people, um, trying to create sectarian divide within countries. Those are wrong on a moral level, and they don't serve your interest. So they're morally wrong. And they're not even in the interest of the American people. You know, if you can make the case that what they do is in the interest of the American people, then maybe you can just have like some type of national type of justification for their actions. But a lot of it, like what benefit to you does it have creating plans to to weaponize religion in Syria and Iraq? What 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 does that what does it accomplish for you? Like, let's go into a country and let's try to promulgate some type of sectarian divide in a country that is, that, you know, that's a ticking time bomb in some accounts. Oh, this country, you know, it's very, oh, here's a Shiite community, here's a Sunni community. You know, they're very, very sectarian. You know, they're very, very identity oriented. Uh, let's see if we can use that as a weapon to destroy this country. Oh, this is the perfect setup. Like, let's, let's do it. And like, all right, so Iran in the future... I just want to talk about Iran for a second. If there is a regime change, if there's military action, it's not going to be boots on the ground. It's not going to be boots on the ground like in Iraq. Um, you've heard, probably heard reports or Iran is currently threat, threatening to close down the Strait of Hormuz. Well, are they going to close down the Strait of Hormuz? Most likely they're not because that would probably inspire some type of military intervention. Um the Strait of Hormuz is the most important choke point in the world as far as energy supply. That's where Saudi Arabia exports all of its oil. The majority of their oil is all exported on the East Coast. So closing down the Strait of Hormuz would just, you know, if you think the oil prices are going to go up high now, you know, oil prices would go up like 800% if the Strait of Hormuz was closed. So they're threatening to do that, but that would probably inspire some type of, of some type of, if not direct military action, it would probably inspire some covert plan to destroy the country within. And believe me, Iran is a, is could be a ticking time bomb as well. You could go in there and you could probably do the same type of thing that you did in Syria, 
where you try to weaponize different religions against each other. There's different, there's Arab groups. Most likely that would be it because the Arabs in Iran, they live in the South where the oil is. So what they would do is that they would probably try to create some sect, some ethnic, not sectarian, but an ethnic divide between the Arab population and the Persian population. That would probably be the plan if they were trying to create a, if they were trying to do regime change in Iran. It wouldn't be direct military action, because a direct military action with Iran would be absolutely brutal and devastating. It would be horrible. There would be probably ten thousand American soldiers that would die. If you thought Iraq would was bad, then wait till you invade Iran. Iran is bigger, has a stronger military, and the terrain is much more complicated. The terrain, like Iraq's a big desert. Iran is mountainous. There's there's just there, there's way. It's like Afghanistan in a lot of ways geographically. It would just be incredibly difficult to 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 control. Um, it would be it would be absolutely devastating on the world. And not only that, not only would the actual military intervention be just completely bloody for the American side, for American soldiers, for any Western party that participated in that, it would be if you think the regional instability right now in the Middle East is bad, wait till you invade Iraq. I mean wait till you invade Iran. You know what happens? I can guarantee you that the Shiite militias in Iraq would start fighting the American soldiers stationed there. And I can guarantee you that Hezbollah would go ahead and attack Israel, probably simultaneously. It would be brutal. So not even just in Iran. It would just be an all-out Middle East war if there was an invasion of Iran. So there really isn't a military... There is no military solution for Iran. At least with boots on the ground. So in the future... And listen, like, I don't want to pretend like I'm some super analyst or something. Like, you know, I'm, I'm pulling, I'm just making, I'm not even making predictions. I'm just saying, you know, I wouldn't be surprised in the future if there was some type of covert operation within Iran to divide it up between Arabs and Persians or they've or there could be other ways to do it as well iran's pretty diverse it's majority persian but there's a lot of different ethnic groups there's different there's different sectarian divides in there and there's also terrorist groups that are very anti-iranian uh regime as well so something like that could happen and it would be really bad it would be bad the best case for iran the best future case for iran is if you left them alone and then you let people you, you let the organic change within the country happen you let the progressives you let the young people start demanding change by themselves because i think that would happen it's like if you look at videos or if you look at any if you look at like just like the ground situation in iran i've seen some vice pieces i've seen i've seen stuff on iran where the young population the people in their 20s and 30s for even 40s, uh, the younger population, they all look just like us. They're no different. They're just young people going to work every single day. They have their social life. Like, they're, they're really no different. But when you pay, sanction them, 
that's an act of war on them because the government's not affected. Like the Ayatollah is still going to be able to sit in whatever the Ayatollah sits in, his nice luxury Ayatollah palace. I don't know what it's actually called in Tehran. Like they're not, they're still going to be living comfortably and they're going to enjoy the actual unification with, with the people because the people will come to them for the solution. And it, let's just say they do put a moderate in charge. The question is, is that do you still condemn that moderate as if he's a, if, if he's he, as if he's Ayatollah Khamenei? Do you still treat him like he's a monster? So this leaves us with the question: like, what is the goal? What is the goal with Iran? Like, what are our foreign policy ambitions with Iran? What are Mike Pompeo's ambitions? What does he want? What's his philosophy? Well, I have something from Mike Pompeo that he wrote last year at the end of the year. And basically, it's, it's, some, it's a policy paper that he wrote. It's called Confronting Iran by Mike Pompeo. And uh, I'll start reading it, and I'll tell you the things that I find interesting that he points out. So, Mike Pompeo. The end of the Cold War forced new thinking among policymakers and analysts about the greatest challenges to U.S. national security. The emergence of al-Qaeda, cyber criminals like Mr. Robot, and other dangerous entities affirm the threat of non-state actors, but equally daunting has been the resurgence of outlaw regimes. Rogue states that defy international norms, fail to respect human rights and fundamental freedoms, and act against security of the American people, U.S. allies and partners, and the rest of the world. Okay, who's the first person that you think of? I'm going to raise my hand up. I'm gonna raise, I can get this one. I'm thinking of a country that's in the Arabian Peninsula called Saudi Arabia that, uh, well, recently just had a big public execution where they cut off heads and they posted poles. They post, they put them on poles. They display their bodies like a Game of Thrones, an episode of Game of Thrones. Like that, that's what they did. They put Ned Stark's head on a spike. They're like Saudi Arabia is like the definition of a rogue state. Like that. If you look at the definition of a rogue state of Saudi Arabia, they do everything bad. There's nothing redeeming about that. Them. There's not. There's zero redeeming qualities in Saudi Arabia. They oppress their people. The 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 king and the monarchy and the princes, the the council, the prince council that controls Saudi Arabia, really runs the country like it's a mafia, like they're straight up mob a mob family. Oil is their drug. They're just an oil cartel. That's it. That's what they are. They struck oil by accident. They got lucky and they capitalized it. And they basically just shit on the rest of the Middle East for their entire existence. That's Saudi Arabia. They, they just think of the level of absurdity that women were just recently let allowed to drive. Just think of that level of absurdity. And that's our number. That's our number two ally in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia. We're married to them. We may fight once in a while, but at the end of the day, we have makeup sex. Too bad that one of the partners is generally mutilated so they can't enjoy it. Chief among these outlaw regimes are North Korea and Iran. Their transgressions against international peace are many, but both nations are most notorious for having spent decades pursuing nuclear weapons programs in violation of international prohibitions. 
Despite Washington's best efforts at diplomacy, Pyongyang hoodwinked U.S. policymakers with a string of broken arms control agreements going back to George H.W. Bush. North Korea's nuclear weapons and ballistic missile programs continued apace, to the point where after Donald Trump was elected, President Barack Obama told him that this would be his greatest national security challenge. With Iran, likewise, the deal that the Obama administration struck in 2015, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the JCPOA, failed to end the country's nuclear ambitions. In fact, because Iran knew that the Obama administration would prioritize preserving the deal over anything else, the JCPOA created a sense of impunity on part of the regime, allowing it to increase its support for malign activity. The deal has also given Tehran piles of money, which the Supreme Leader has used to sponsor all types of terrorism throughout the Middle East, with few consequences in response, and which have boosted the economic fortunes of a regime that remains bent on ex exporting its revolution abroad and opposing it at home. So the reason why Iran has more influence in, middle, in the Middle East than ever before is not because of Barack Obama's dovish policy, but it's because of his hawkish policy. The reason why they have more influence is because Barack Obama tried to destroy Syria. That's why the country has more influence, because they were invited in to help them fight other terrorist groups. That the threats from North Korea and Iran grew in the post-Iraq war era has further complicated the question of how best to counteract them, Americans are rightly skeptical of the cost of a protracted military commitment in the name of protection from weapons of mass destruction. Well, that's a good point. Most people are, are pretty skeptical of a military commitment in Iran. With the difficulties of Iraq fresh in mind, and with previous agreements to restrain the threats from North Korea and Iran having proved impotent, stopping these recalitrant regimes from doing harm demands new diplomatic paradigms. Enter President Trump. For all the Washington establishments fretting over his style of international engagement, his, dip this, his diplomacy is anchored in a deliberate approach that gives the U.S. an advantage in confronting outlaw regimes. You know what? Kim Jong-un is fat. Yeah, okay. He's a fat guy. Yeah, he's a little rocket man. Yeah. Okay. Kim Jong-un is fat. Epic diplomacy. Hey, it actually did work. I do give Trump credit on North Korea, even though things have kind of derailed recently. But overall, I think the Trump administration has actually done a okay job with North Korea. Better than any other president has so far. But let's not digress too far. We're talking about Iran and Pompeo. The Trump Doctrine. All right, both on the campaign, tra campaign trail and in office, President Trump has been clear about the need for bold American leadership to put the United States security interests first. This common sense principle reverses the Obama administration's preferred posture of leading from behind like a damn leftist Democrat. An accommodationist strategy that incorrectly signaled diminished American power and influence. Obama didn't really do that. Obama was pretty hawkish. Like, I don't understand where this narrative comes from. Obama expanded our war front. He was the drone master. He destroyed Libya. Like, he was not hawkish, not leading from behind. In a lot of ways, Obama had this kind of, like, 
Wilsonian attitude about the world, about reshaping the world and some type of liberal nice value that Obama likes. So I don't understand like this perception of him. It's not it's not really true. Um, the Republican reception that Democrats are doves is not is not true. Um, leading from behind made North Korea a greater threat today than ever before. Leading from behind at the at best only delayed Iran's pursuit of becoming a nuclear power, while allow, allowing the Islamic Republic's malign influence and terror threat to grow. Listen, the main reason with North Korea and why North Korea uh, progress was made, it wasn't it didn't really have much to do with uh, President Trump. Um, so it was it, it had to do with Moon and the South Korean people demanding it. They actually so South Korea remember they put their their uh, president in jail for a bunch of corruption cases. They elected Moon on the platform of the Sunshine Policy, where he was going to try to make peace with North Korea. The South Korean people were they were looking for leadership that would actually create some type of diplomatic relationship with North Korea. They put Moon in place, and Moon is the one that really started that coalition of like that culture coalition where they, you know, had uh, they had a joint hockey team in the Winter Olympics. The North Korea, you know, they met. Um, you know, the weird North Korean robot dancers where were they performed in the, in the Olympics. Like, they, they started with the culture ties. Like, that's why the North Korean peace happened. It, it happened because of South Korea mostly. Um, if you remember, Trump threatened when, – when Moon was initially reaching out to, uh, to Kim Jong-un, he initially was actually threatening South Korea with, with uh, steel tariffs, um, if I can recall. Steel tariffs. He was threatening them. So Trump really, I, I will say he deserves credit at how he's handled it so far. Not too much credit, but the majority of that credit goes with Moon. It doesn't really go with the Trump administration. It definitely doesn't go with Mike Pompeo. And um, I don't know, I just kind of a weird, it, it's kind of like a weird thing to take credit for. But of course, the administration is going to take credit for that. So it, it's just, there's a conflict of visions right here with, with Mike Pompeo. Both North Korea and Iran have been put on notice that the U.S. will not allow their destabilizing activities to go unchecked. The aggressive multinational pressure campaign that the U.S. had led against North Korea, combined with the president's clear and unequivocal statements that the U.S. will defend its vital interests with force if necessary, created the conditions for the talks that culminated in President Trump's summit with Chairman Kim Jong-un in Singapore this past June. Again, yeah, you can make that argument, but really, I, I think if you look at the evidence, if you look back, I think I think Moon really does deserve the majority of the, the the South Korean people. I think really deserve the majority of the credit for the increase in uh, diplomatic relations with North Korea and the um, decreased threat of them actually going insane and nuking somebody. Okay, it was there that. Chairman Kim committed to the final fully verified denuclearization of North Korea. North Korea has made similar commitments in the past, but unlike those, this was the first time there was a personal leader-to-leader commitment on denuclearization. That may or may not signal a major strategic shift on the part of Chairman Kim. And we have much work to do to gauge his intentions and make sure his commitment is implemented. But President Trump's approach has created an opportunity to peacefully resolve an issue of vital national security that has long vexed policymakers. The president, our special representative for North Korea, and I will continue to work with clear eyes to seize this opportunity. 
Okay, so um, sorry if there's honking in the background right now. Um, I'm recording this podcast in a very odd time. There is just a lot of crazy things that are going outside of the studio. So I apologize for that. There's like a there's construction going on and there's just a lot of there's noise. So I apologize. But um, yeah, again, um, I I don't really know where he where he goes at with with his intentions. So Donald Trump. So Kim Jong Un. Here's my perception with Kim Jong Un on on the nukes. So. North Korea, the whole reason why they had nuclear weapons in the first place, the reason why that they they had a nuclear program was to eventually barter them away so they can negotiate them away because North Korea doesn't really need nuclear weapons to destroy South Korea. They have artillery that can actually just kill millions of people that's pointing at Seoul right now. So the whole point was to build a nuclear program to negotiate them away. Um they just haven't found the right deal, I guess. But was to uh, trade their nuclear program for economic sanction relief because they don't really need it. Yeah, like the nuclear program threatens us. It threatens the United States. I mean, they launched the missile into space. However, the nuclear, the, the main deterrent that they have, they have two deterrents. And I don't want to go too off topics, but I, I want to highlight this. The two deterrents that they have is that they have artillery facing Seoul that can kill millions of people. And also, if the state is destroyed, then there'll be a huge migrant crisis in China, which China doesn't want. So those are the two deterrents that they have. I think that the nukes are just a, a, bar, a bargaining chip. Uh, but that's just me talking. I ain't no expert. I'm just a guy. All right. With Iran, similarly... The Trump administration is pursuing a maximum pressure campaign designed to choke off revenues at the regime, in particularly the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, part of Iran's military that is directly beholden to the supreme leader, uses to fund violence through Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in the Palestinian territories, and Assad in the Assad regime in Syria, and the Houthi rebels in Yemen, Shiite militias in Iraq, and its own agent covertly plotting around the world. So, all right. There's really no confirmed link or proof that Iran funds the Houthis. Now, there's speculation that they fund them, but there's no confirmed link. There's speculation that they fund them in a very minor capacity, but there's no confirmed link. There's no confirmed evidence that they're supplying them with weapons. There's zero confirmed evidence. There's speculation. There's no evidence. There was a ship coming in into it was there was a ship coming out of the Strait of Hormuz that was about to that the U.S. said had weapons that they were about to supply the Houthis with, but they were never able to actually board that ship and prove that there are weapons on that ship. It was pure off speculation. So everything that we say about the Iran-Houthi connection is speculation. None of it's proven. When Nikki Haley, which, when she was saying that she, was, she has proof and she was doing that speech in front of, a, nuclear, in front of a, a missile, that wasn't a missile that was directly from Iran. That was from a Yemeni stockpile, and it seemed to be from North Korea. So that is kind of bullshit. And when he points out Shiite militias in Iraq— the United States worked with Shiite militias in Iraq after ISIS got under control, after ISIS sacked Mosul. So come on. Like, come on. Um, that's just – Assad invited them into the country because the country is about to be overtaken by, by jihadists. So, again, a conflict of visions. I mean, I'm just some guy and just Pompeo is the guy who was trained to lie, cheat, and steal. I don't know if that reflects in the paper. 
All right. The U.S. Yet President Trump does not want another long-term U.S. military engagement in the Middle East or in any other region for that matter. He has spoken openly about the dreadful consequences of the 2003 invasion of Iraq and the 2011 intervention in Libya. Pundits may give up fear the idea that the administration will get the U.S. into a war, but it's clear that, Amer- that Americans have a president who, while not afraid to use military power, just asked the Islamic State that the Taliban or the Assad regime. What are you talking about? Just ask the, the Islamic State, the Taliban or the Assad regime. Those, first of all, the Taliban is bigger than ever. The Taliban is bigger than w- when we first started this war in 2001. Yeah, we did inflict a lot of violence on the Taliban, but they're bigger than ever. Ask the Islamic State. Well, the Islamic State was largely defeated by the Syrian army as well as the FSA, um, I guess, which is a U.S.-backed coalition. And the Assad, not the FSA, the SDF, sorry. Um, in the Assad regime, I mean, we didn't really do, Trump really didn't do anything to the Assad regime. He actually, kind of, he, he's the one who kind of put a stop to a lot of the madness that was going on there. So he bombed a missile silo, or, or he bombed a factory that was a, a weapons depot that wasn't even, a, that, that there was no one in. It was just kind of like throwing bombs in the sand. So it's not like he's been aggressive on Assad. Um, he's been hawk, he's been dovish on Assad. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but he's been a lot, his Assad, uh, his Syria policy is much more lenient than than um, Obama's. Um, okay, I lost track. Another important aspect of the president's diplomacy is his willingness to talk to the U.S.'s staunchest adversaries. As he said in July, diplomacy and engagement is preferable to conflict and hostility. Consider his approach to North Korea. His diplomacy with Chairman Kim diffused tensions that were escalating by the day. Complimenting the president's willingness to engage is his instinctual aversion to bad deals. His understandings of the Understanding of the importance of leverage in any negotiation eliminates the potential for deeply counterproductive agreements like the JCPOA. He is willing to forge agreements with U.S. rivals, but he is also comfortable walking away from negotiations if they don't end up furthering U.S. interests. This is in stark contrast to the Obama administration approach to the JCPOA, in which the deal itself became an objective to be obtained at all costs. All right, so he goes on on this for a while. I don't, this is not that relevant. I just want to go on to the, the thing he wrote about the Iranian threat. All right. So the Iranian threat, president Trump's commitment to the American people's security combined with the aversion to the unnecessary use of military force and his willingness to talk to adversaries has provided a new framework for confronting outlaw regimes. And today, no regime has more of an outlaw character than that of Iran, except Saudi Arabia. That has been, he didn't say that. That's my commentary, Saudi Arabia. That has been the case since 1979, when a relatively small cadre of Islamic revolutionaries seized power. This regime revolutionary's mindset has motivated its actions ever since. In fact, soon after its founding, the the IRGC created the Quds Force, its elite special forces unit, and tasked it with exporting a revolution abroad. Ever since, regime officials have subordinated all other domestic and international responsibilities, including their obligations to the Iranian uh, people to fulfilling the revolution. So the Quds Force is like the Iranian uh, Green Berets. They go into other areas and they try to create militias. 
Um, they work like in Lebanon and stuff, and they try to inspire. That is true. That that's what the Quds Force objective is. Um, as a result, over the past four decades, the regime has sown a great deal of destruction and instability, bad behavior that did not end with the GCPOA. The deal did not permanently prevent Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapon. Indeed, the statement in April by Iran's top nuclear official that this country could restart its nuclear programs in days suggests that it may not have delayed the program very much at all. Nor did the deal curtail Iran's violent and destabilizing activity in Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, and Gaza. Iran still supplies the Houthis with missiles that are fired at Saudi Arabia, supports Hamas, attacks on Israel, and recruits impressionable Afghan, Iraqi, and Pakistani youth to fight and die in Syria. Thanks to Iranian subsidies, the average Lebanese Hezbollah fighter earns two or three times per month what a fireman in Tehran brings home. Okay, again, there's no proof that Iran is giving missiles to yeah to the Houthis. There's no proof. There's no proof. Got to sort like why don't you source something, dude? Like this thing has no sort. Like when you write these papers, like don't you you just fucking source one thing instead of just making these. Again, Mike Pompeo, he lies, he cheats, he steals. Source something. Just bring a proof. There's no proof. All the proof has been speculation. We don't know that. We, we don't. This, this is a cabal to keep the war going, that Iran is somehow a, a proxy, has a proxy in there. It's such bullshit. People should be able to see through it. And in recruits impressionable Afghan, Iraqi, Pakistani, Uthi fighters that die in Syria. Well, I know who they died fighting. They fighted. They died fighting ISIS. Again, I'm not controlling. I'm not defending Iran. Iran does suck. They suck. They're a shitty country. They have an oligarchical uh, tendency. There's like, I forget the exact statistic, but I know there's like 20 families that control like the entire, like most of Iran's industry. The hardliners are bad. They throw you in jail. They do have stuff like secret police. They're oppressive. They're bad. It's a bad government. And they do. They are not benign actors in the Middle East as well. They do cause problems. They do. They're invited into. Basically, they're kind of like the guy that you invite into your country for help when there's like an emergency. But then the guy like starts like kind of extorting you a little bit at the same time. But like the, when the country's in crisis mode, they'll be like, "All right, fuck, we got to get Iran in there." And then Iran will come in, and they'll be like, fuck, now Iran's in here. Iran does suck. But they get invited into these countries to help them with military endeavors because the country is in chaos. And it's because usually there's, like, some type of jihadist group that is imported into those countries. That's why they're invited in there. Not because they want Iran. It's not like the Arabs want the Persians to come in and invade them. Iran is invited into every country that it goes into. So... Yeah, they do have a presence there, and yeah, they are shitty. But let's look at the overall foreign policy as a whole and ask why are they going into the countries before we like like oh Iran's messing up our imperial ambitions in these countries. Ah, we were supposed to destroy them, and then Iran came in there and they stopped them. Let the Arab countries push them out. Let the let the Iranian youth kick the hardliners out. They'll do it if you let them. You'll do it. They'll do it if you go away. They will. I think, mark my words. If the if U.S. had a less hawkish policy on Iran, the, youth, the, the two youths, the two youth, youth um, would, would uh, reform 
I, I really do think that. I think a lot of these countries in the Middle East would reform naturally if the U.S. if if the U.S. wasn't causing instability in these areas. Um, of course, they're not perfect, but the other opportunity is to behave like a normal country. All right, we're getting over an hour, um, but so I'm going to try to wrap this up. I'm not giving the full article justice, so I'll post it in the, in the link below so you can see it because there's one more thing I want to go over. Um, in May 2018, President Trump withdrew from the nuclear deal because it was clearly not protecting the national security interests of the U.S. Or our, or our allies and partners, nor was it making Iran behave like a normal country. What is a normal country according to Mike Pompeo? I'm just so curious. What is a normal country? What's a normal country? Is a normal country a country that, um, I don't know, like, uh, uh, that blurs out the, the face of uh, female models and, and, and mattress advertisements? So I saw this really funny thing in this, in this documentary about Saudi Arabian women about how they can't drive, well, how they couldn't drive from the time that it was released, and how they were super excited to get their, finally get their driver's license. Hey, the Saudis, they gave them roses when they got their driver's license. That was sweet of them, right? Here. You've been slaves for about, uh, I don't know, 250 years in our in our community, so uh, here's a rose to go with your driver's license. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy the 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 right to drive. Don't lose it. You won't get it back. Um, I saw they went into a mattress store and they were looking at them. They they went into a mattress store and the women, their faces were blurred out because it was decadent to have a woman on a mattress. That's a normal country. A normal country beheads 37 people and then takes their bodies and puts them on poles as a warning under the vague notion of subscribing to a terrorist ideology which means anything that's not wahhabism which is the ultimate terrorist ideology by the way okay this actually leads into a really great segue that i want to move into and because this policy this paper goes on really long and i'm sure you don't want to hear you can read it for yourself but um, i just wanted to make the point of like this guy's dishonesty to be completely honest um it is bullshit so I want to talk about a politician that I do like and I do respect right now. Um, her name is Tulsi, Tulsi Gabbard. I'm, I'm a big fan of Tulsi Gabbard, and she's been, she's, I've, I've uh, given her like just minor constructive criticism, um, but like in, in a constructive nature. But never, I've never like um, slandered her or anything like that. I, I, I really do respect Tulsi Gabbard a lot, and uh, she just nailed it nailed it yesterday like i can't believe that she did this like the courage it took to release this video on her campaign trail took so much audacity and husma what they call it so i'm gonna play it and uh it's just you'll you'll be like whoa President Trump and Vice President Pence continue to try to hide the truth from their Christian supporters that the terrorist attacks on Christians and Christian churches in Sri Lanka and elsewhere are inspired by extremist Saudi ideology that the Saudis spend billions propagating worldwide. Now, the Saudis have been spending 
billions of dollars spreading this most intolerant form of Islam, sometimes known as Wahhabi Salafism, through their mosques and schools around the world. It's an ideology that preaches hatred and bias towards Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, atheists, and Muslims who are not followers of that extremist ideology. Now, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, there are hundreds of terrorist organizations who are inspired by and followers of this ideology. Yet President Trump and Pence, who pose as defenders of Christians and Christianity, have embraced the Saudis, the purveyors of this anti-Christian jihad. Now, every Christian, every Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, or Muslim who believes in the freedom of religion and tolerance must demand that President Trump and Vice President Pence give up their unholy alliance with Saudi Arabia. Now, that was brutally honest, and uh, I was just really blown away that she actually did that on her campaign trail. Um Good for her. She has she's very, she's very courageous for doing that, and she's absolutely right. Saudi Arabia does do that. They do fund Wahhab uh, madrasas that inspire radicalism. And um, this Sri Lanka attack, I haven't commented it yet, and I did a whole episode on New Zealand. I just want to peel that back to that episode where I where I said that identitarian politics causes violence. The Sri Lanka attack is a result of identitarian politics gone mad. And they said it themselves that it's a response to news to the New Zealand shooting. And it's awful. Identitarian politics and identitarian philosophy is cancer. When you categorize yourself as a sectarian sect or an ethnic set or an ideological set and you lose your individualism, this is the type of thing that happens. These cycles of violence happen because when one group does damage to your group, that causes the other group to collectively condemn them. So these acts of violence, they only spur more violence. That coming from whatever group. So I'm going to end on that note. Um, thank you so much for all for uh, for listening for today's show. Um, please remember to rate and review the show. Uh, if you can give it a five star or whatever what you think it feels. Obviously, we prefer the five-star, but uh, please rate and review the podcast. We're trying to get that up to 500, and uh, shout out to uh, a new podcast that I've uh, been listening to. Um, it's uh, about volunteerism and, and uh, a good uh, libertarian podcast if you're into that sort of thing or if you want to learn more about uh, being a libertarian, um, Pseudo-Lectual. Um, you can find them on uh, Spotify and iTunes. It's very good. I liked it a lot. So uh, shout out to Pseudo-Lectual, and... Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks for joining. Peace. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update. 
wherever you get your podcasts.